Good evening to all my fellow one-on-one history podcast listeners out there tonight. We are in for some very good uh, information um, for this uh, podcast uh, session on the Mighty Fitz, the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald by Michael Schumacher. And why do I say that we are in for good information tonight? Well, we're in for good information tonight because we're now really we're now going to be getting more into the uh, final voyage of the Fitzgerald. In other words, we're going to now be getting into what is called the nitty gritty components that um, cause not just so much the Fitzgerald to sink, but but cause the beginning to the end. In other words, a ship just doesn't sink right away. There, more often than not, there are other uh, factors that uh, contribute early on that in the end will cause a ship to sink. So, you know, when we see water, like on the Great Lakes or out in the ocean, we tend to see uh, that water is like blue. Well, let me ask you the, let me ask you all this question: Is there such a thing as green water? I didn't know there was such a thing as green water until having read this book, but the answer is yes. Green water itself is a solid form of water, and I, I hate to say this, but green water is not a ship's friend. Matter of fact, green water itself can destroy a ship's superstructure. It can cave into a hatch cover or hatch covers, let alone. And what I mean by caving in is that it can literally make its way in and destroy not just the outside but the inside of the hatch cover. It can also reduce a pilot house to rubble. And what is a pilot house? It is the enclosed deck where the wheel and a map room are located, the uppermost deck on a ship. So, you know, it's easy to think that oh, a small amount of green water isn't going to do much harm. But no matter how big or small the amount of green water that uh, comes on a ship, it will do its share of damage so bad to where no matter how big or small the ship is, it can um, spell disaster. Well, in order for green water waves to really have full-scale effect in terms of harming a ship, these waves have to be between 25 to 30 feet high. And the waves which wash these waves can wash over the stern to rolling up a ship's length that could push the that can push the bow deep into the water and impact its buoyancy. In other words, when a ship is buoyant, it can float freely. So if, you, if all this green water comes on the Fitzgerald or any other well-known Laker freighter ship, then the ship's, uh, the ship's overall state of buoyancy is going to be severely impacted. So after midnight, being in the hours starting after midnight of November 10th, 1975, both the Edmund Fitzgerald and the Arthur M. Anderson decide to navigate their ships toward Canadian shore. 
In other words, they will. Um, you have, we all have to remember Lake Superior is not only just on the American side, but on the on Canadian waters. So they are going to both ships are going to navigate towards the Canadian shore, which would avoid the worst of the waters. And what that means is that perhaps the worst of the waves. Because remember, uh, people, uh, navigating your ship doesn't always mean keeping it in the middle. You are going to have to be creative as a captain and modify any would-be at-risk scenarios. So when you look at Captains McSorley and uh, Captain, or rather I should say Captains Ernest McSorley and uh, Bernie Cooper, they've been around for a long time to know um, not just the lay of the water, but to know how to um, immediately change course when necessary. And I should also point out that these freighter ships are not like our cars that we drive. In other words, they can't just turn around right away and say, well, I'm going to go back and, and uh, wait the storm out. No, it, it doesn't work that way. Once you're halfway through, number one, you can't turn back. And secondly, you um, unfortunately can be at the mercy of Mother Nature when, when it's least expected. So this is where survival of the fittest is going to come into play even more. So, at around 7 a.m. on November 10th of 1975, Captain McSorley notifies Ogle Bay Norton, who is uh, one of the uh, chief sponsors through Columbia Fleet and um, Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company. Uh, Captain McSorley notifies Ogle Bay Norton in their office in Cleveland, Ohio, to inform them that the ETA, or what's called the estimated time of arrival into the Sioux Locks, is indefinite. And what I mean by indefinite in this case is that there, that there is just simply not a 100% accurate time frame on when they will arrive into the Sioux Locks because of the um, weather conditions and how much is changing in a short period of time. All right, here's a bonus question for us. Have all five Great Lakes experienced, or should I say, been responsible for producing violent storms? Oh, the answer is yes. If anybody would think that one or more of the, of the, of the five Great Lakes have not experienced or been a part of uh, producing violent storms, that, um, that should raise a red flag right there. So... What is one famous storm? There have been, like I said, there have been many famous storms, but what um, there has been one famous storm uh, that I'll mention here in a moment. But what I should also point out too is that many, if not all, well-known Great Lakes storms were more destructive than weather forecasters had predicted, and these storms included hurricane force winds and waves as high as two to three story buildings. So that that should just tell you right there how powerful Mother Nature can be when you least expect it, but also what the gales of November themselves can bring. It's an awesome force, but yet it's a scary one. So here's a brief example of a Deadly Great Lakes storm that occurred in the month of November. Why so? 
the gales of November. It was the it was uh, during a matter of four days, four days consecutive from November 9th to the 12th of 1913 that became known as the Four Day Storm, which hit all five Great Lakes. It resulted in the sinking of 10 ships, damaging or destroying 30 to claiming the lives of 235 men. And Lake Huron was the one of all five Great Lakes that bore the brunt of the disaster, where where eight of the ten ships were lost with a total of 178 lives. It's bad enough you lose 235 men, but to lose lose well over 100 on one of the Great Lakes within that four-day span... That is a very, that's a very scary um, that's a very scary finding to say the least. And it turns out, uh, from what I read briefly, and I'd have to read more of this um, perhaps in another book that that is written. I can't remember who wrote it, but there is a book out there that would be worth reading about the um, deadly storm of 1913. But Historians do know that weather forecasts had been accurate about the storm, but yet there was not enough uh, warnings for the crewmen. However, many of the uh, crews knew the risks they were taking, but yet they were insistent on going out because (laughs) it wasn't like they could just um, reschedule for another time and say, hey, uh, the freight will still be good. One of the worst uh, mistakes that can often be made when it comes to underestimating nature is going out in the water because you're so worried about making your your focus is on making a profit and and making that profit because if if you don't if you know that you're not going to have the chance to to do this again, you've got to go now because um, you can't replace. I hate to say this, you can't replace um, the um, money-making opportunity that's at hand. So, I hate to say this, but for many of these people, their livelihoods were always at stake. What that means is that um, it wasn't just so much chase. they weren't so much chasing the almighty dollar, they were constantly make having to make ends meet to make sure that goods going to the consumers were met in a timely manner so that whatever was in demand could be met to those um, who were dependent upon the materials. So supply and demand um, was always a very tricky thing um, for this time of, um, of the year being in November. So um, at around 1 p.m. on November 10th of 1975, the weather brings sunny skies as the Fitzgerald herself is sailing under moderate seas. Despite turning south at around 12 o'clock, the Fitz is still facing heavy seas. So she's already in Canadian waters and would remain there until the very end of the voyage when it would angle slightly west towards Whitefish Bay. Now I find this important because, you know, it's one thing to navigate the waters of any of the Great Lakes, but there are islands and how many islands are there on the eastern side, or should I say the eastern edge of Lake Superior? There's only two. They are the Mishapikatan and Caribou Islands. Caribou Island is a heavily wooded 17-mile strip of land 
rising out of Superior or that, or let me rephrase this, a 17-mile strip of land rising out of Superior that presented a hazard to ships straying too close. So, you know, if a ship strays too close, given that this island, being Caribou Island, is rising out of Superior, that is definitely a hazard that must be taken into consideration. So in between both islands, that is Mishapikaton and Caribou, Superior's depth can go from 600 feet at its deepest to, to 36 feet at its shallowest. There's not a whole lot of room for uh, what you call margin of error here because you could be uh, going in, in one of you call the furthest points, but, but then in a matter of a few miles, it can uh, change very rapidly to where it becomes very shallow. So, as for the Arthur Anderson, she is steering west of Mishapikaton Island to prevent the possibility of taking on storm seas whereas the Edmund Fitzgerald is going to steer in between the islands, which basically will give Captain Ernest McSorley a straight shot into Whitefish Bay. Let me ask you this. Do you think the Anderson steering west of Mishapikaton Island is um, a good thing? Yes. Of course, it's not a 100% guarantee that, um, that, he, that his ship is completely out of the woods, but it is going to help modify the potential of taking on uh, additional storm seas. The Edmund Fitzgerald, well, here's a case of hit and miss, 50-50. Um, you know, Ernest McSorley knows these waters well, but just because you know the waters well, it doesn't mean there again that you're 100% safe. It's like that old saying, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So, you know, the weather is all the more crucial here. Some people may think, why are you reporting these weather conditions? Of course, I'm not the meteorologist, but I'm also going by how the National Weather Service was making these forecast predictions. And these predictions weren't just once every four hours. They were becoming more and more rampant because the weather was changing so quickly. The sky had become dark once again. Snow started to fall. You have 12-foot waves hitting the Fitzgerald sides, sending spray over the spar deck. And what is the spar deck? It's the deck where the hatches are located. Gosh, you know, I hate to say this. Yes, all those hatches are well secured, but it doesn't mean that they are immune from that green water coming along. Now, the Fitzgerald, given that there's 29 members aboard this ship, you've got men of all different ages. But did the older members of this ship, or of the crew itself, take the month of November for granted? Yes, they did. You know, taking something for granted is not always a good thing. But in this case, those who were seasonal seasoned veterans who'd been around for years and who had been on the Fitzgerald for some time, they had learned how to ride out the worst of the storms. In other words, one was essentially confined to their quarters, uh, 
aka your room where one could read to watching television or just to rest before going back on to start a new shift. We must remember that not everybody worked at the same time. People had to rest, and then those who were done with their work took their place. That's part of the cycle right there, because if everyone's asleep, with the exception of the captain and the first and third mates, then how is essential work going to be done from below? Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, there were two islands on eastern Lake Superior, being Mishapikaton and Caribou. But eastern Lake Superior is home to many treacherous shoals. And what is a shoal? It is a shallow area of water that is usually marked by a sandbar or a reef, an area of rising lake floor. Shoals are lethal. They can destroy ships in a matter of minutes. Lake Superior's islands, being of underwater terrain, are very rugged. Lake's floor... The floor of the lake can rise from hundreds of feet in depth to less than 50 feet in very little distance. Here again, there's a very little um, marginal room for error when navigating these waters, especially around the eastern end. How many miles was the channel between Mishapikaton and Caribou Islands? The answer is 22 miles. 22 doesn't seem like a lot, but but there again, with the shoals, and you, you can't underestimate anything. Now, Bernie Cooper's, or should I say given that Captain Bernie Cooper, who is the captain of the Anderson, it turns out that he's 15 miles behind the Fitz. However, he's going to chart a course that would go farther west of Mishapikaton, Island versus the course of the Fitzgerald. The Fitzgerald took the one that was closer to Six Fathom Shoal. Now, let's pay very careful attention here. By 3.35 p.m. on November 10th of 1975, Captain Bernie Cooper of the Anderson is on a radio telephone call with Captain McSorley. Captain Ernest McSorley reports the first issues. He has informed Captain Bernie Cooper that his ship has sustained some damage. Captain McSorley himself reports that he has had a fence rail down with vents torn off and a bad list. And what I mean by a bad list here is that the ship had begun to lean, had begun to gradually lean or tip to one side. Per what I just described above, based off of what Captain McSorley has told uh, Captain Bernie Cooper of the Anderson, it is very likely, per this damage description, that the Fitzgerald has hit a shoal. And Captain Cooper has attested to it. You know, it's one thing for a fence rail to come down, but Captain... Bernie Cooper has known in all of his years on the Great Lakes waters that fence rails themselves just don't come down during a storm. Fence rails themselves have to experience extreme changes in tension. 
In other words, if the winds are that fierce, then a fence rail can become all the more prone or susceptible to either sustaining damage or just come completely off if those conditions are ripe. And another factor to think about, too, is what's called ship hogging. That is the bending down of the front and a ship's back with no support in the middle. Captain Cooper, or let alone I should say Bertie Cooper, has become more convinced by this point in time that the Edmund Fitzgerald had at some point touched bottom somewhere near the Six Fathom Shoal. So if the Fitzgerald did touch bottom near the Six Fathom Shoal, then she is basically on what's called borrowed time. In other words, when a ship is on borrowed time, it just basically means that it's just only a matter of a short amount of time before, before she's ultimately doomed. And, you know, we don't know exactly how much of the ship was affected by hitting, if it did hit a hole, a, a shoal rather, I should say. But regardless of how big or small the shoal is, this is going to have a deep, this is going to have a negative impact on the Fitzgerald. So, um, I, I hate to say that, but that is um, the reality of it right here. What is a fathom? A fathom is a measurement of depth equal to the equivalent of six feet. And how was the weather impacting elsewhere, not just around Michigan, but elsewhere in the upper Midwest? Well, you have fierce winds that are snapping power lines to trees left and right, and the trees are being torn from the ground by their roots. And the winds had swayed even the Mackinac Bridge. And what is the Mackinac Bridge? I think it's worth pointing out. It's a five-mile suspension bridge that connects Lakes Michigan and Huron to the upper and lower peninsulas of Michigan. It's also the bridge that um, connects the mainland to the upper peninsula of Michigan as well. Uh, and the Mackinac Bridge is located in uh, Mackinac City, in case you, any of you all are wondering. But to make matters worse, it wasn't so much that the bridge was closed but the bridge had to be closed because a truck got blown over onto a car. And then this, as for the Sioux locks, the Sioux locks themselves were facing 90 mile per hour winds, which forced the locks to be closed due to the waves surging over the lock gates. This is an ultimate recipe for the, for the perfect storm, not just for the ships that are on the water, but for the essential, um, other essential outlets for uh, traveling, like the Mackinac Bridge. And then uh, just for the Sioux Locks alone, where ships can come in and out from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Upper and Lower Peninsula, rather, I should say. As for shelter for the Edmund Fitzgerald and the Arthur Anderson, shelter is still four to five hours away, people. 
And to make matters worse, the wind itself had blown off the radar antennas on the pilot house roof, leaving the Fitzgerald basically to sail blind. By this point in time, with the Fitzgerald's um, radar antennas being gone, she might as well be in the 19th century or at the start of the 20th century. This is, um, this is scary, people. I mean, I can't imagine being on a ship, not just the Fitzgerald or any other large freighter, and then all of a sudden um, the radar antennas have, are blown away um, because of the fierce winds and the unstable uh, weather conditions. Believe me, this is the... Um, this is where Mother Nature is ever so powerful, and not so for the right reasons, but this is where she can unleash all kinds of destruction on a ship, regardless of its size. And then by around 4.10 on the afternoon of November 10th of 1975, Captain McSorley reports to the Anderson about losing both of the radars. The Fitzgerald's now three to five miles east of Caribou Island with waves at 10 to 15 feet to winds at more than 60 miles an hour. I hate to say this, folks, but there's just no letting up in sight. What lighthouse is the oldest on Lake Superior? Here's another good bonus question. The answer is Whitefish Point Lighthouse. This lighthouse has been guiding ships to the shelter of Whitefish Point for more than a century. Sadly, on this day, November 10th of 1975, the storm itself had knocked out the lighthouse's electricity, which blocked further contact, not just with the Fitzgerald, but from other ships. Despite coming back on for a brief period of time, it then went back off, and to no avail, the Fitzgerald could not um, get through to the lighthouse. But by about 5.30 p.m., the water itself has now entered the Fitzgerald more freely than, than ever before, entering through the hatch covers to opening the vents to below the water line. Tons of green water is making its way over the spar deck. This is not good. This is just not good. It's getting to the point where it's going to be beyond bad. And no matter how well secured those hatch covers are, at the sheer magnitude in which these waves are coming, there really is no 100% guarantee protection system in play for the um, safety and well-being of the features on the ship, like those hatch covers or open vents, let alone. Despite being more than 10 miles ahead of the Arthur M. Anderson, the Edmund Fitzgerald struggles to stay on course. Without radar or light from Whitefish Point, the Fitzgerald is forced to rely on periodic calls from the Arthur M. Anderson for, reading on its, for readings on its position. At 7 p.m. on November 10th of 1975, the Anderson informed Captain McSorley that the Fitzgerald was 15 miles from Chris Point, about being 12 miles from Whitefish Point in safety. You know, to us now, we, we think that there is a sign of hope, given that you're only 12 miles from Whitefish Point. I hate to tell you this, the Fitzgerald's going to need 60 to 90 minutes to, wait, to make Whitefish Bay in blizzard conditions. 
As for Lake Superior, or let alone Mother Nature, they're offering only a quarter hour. There is no compromising here. There's no middle of the road. There, once again, the ship is on borrowed time. It's sad because did the Edmund Fitz is the Edmund Fitzgerald being cocky here? Is the Fitzgerald trying to outsmart Nate Mother Nature? No. The Fitzgerald sadly is just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But why is it that on other occasions throughout so many other years she managed to make it through the gales of November? Well, I hate to say this, but luck isn't always on one side. But why aren't but why is it that these men aren't being looked after when they haven't done anything wrong? You know, Gordon Lightfoot mentions something like this in his favorite in his famous song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I probably would rather tell you all that in another podcast, but it will be very it'll be very essential though when the time comes. But I could mention, I'll tell you what, I could mention it right now, just to give you all a heads up. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? Let's think hard about that. Here, just for a brief moment, many ships, when facing unstable conditions, deal with a wave or two that just lasts a couple of minutes. But when the waves become hourly issues, there is uncertainty. You have to ask yourself, are we sailing into a monster? Or what monster alone has been created? This is where Mother Nature is going to prevail. It's not that God isn't looking after us, but even God himself can't control Mother Nature. Titanic for whom the Edmund Fitzgerald had gotten the nickname of being Titanic of the Great Lakes. That famous ship, the Titanic, though, considering that she was unsinkable, um, neglected every uh, warning given to her from other ships. She was more concerned about breaking records for all the wrong reasons. And look what happened to her. She she only made it, she, she didn't even finish her first voyage. And she died, or should I say she sunk. The Edmund Fitzgerald's been on the waters for 17 years. Yes, Captain McSorley said that he had seen lots of unpredictable storms, but even he himself has admitted that he has not seen anything like this. Well, one could say that it could be one of those one-in-a-hundred-year storms. Well, really, it's a nor'easter, but even nor'easters have a mind of their own. Well, folks, we have covered some incredible ground tonight. Incredible ground that perhaps is good, and on the other hand, it's sad. Because the inevitable is just a short matter of time. And once again, let's all think when we're going to bed tonight. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? This that line will be mentioned again in another podcast down the road here when I talk about talk more about Gordon Lightfoot's song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Take care for now, my fellow listeners, and uh, thank you for um, 
and thank you for uh, being a part of tonight's podcast session. Stay safe and good night.